Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as at interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by tech meister Marshall Brown, who will make me easier to understand than I deserve, and by our artist of the show. Welcome to Episode 1, where we'll examine articles from recent media. There are some fantastic pieces of journalism out there, articles that appear shortly in various periodicals and then disappear like media mayflies. Part of our job here is to make sure more people hear about these reports and get summaries and analysis that provokes them, gets them thinking. The other goal of our podcast is to introduce you to creative people around the world, artists who have been changing the world in their own little ways. Today we talk to artist Steve Weingarten, a sculptor, set maker, improviser, and environmental artist. Seven German words that perfectly capture the feeling of living in Trump's America by Liz Posner. Every language has some attributes that make it uniquely perfect for describing certain situations. I don't speak any Inuit languages or dialects, but I hear that they have numerous ways of describing snow or ice. Other languages are good at describing kinds of cheese or nuances in wine. Liz Posner tells us that German has words that are perfect for describing being alive in the age of Trump. When I set out to research the German words that capture what it feels like to be an American living during the era of the Trump administration, I didn't expect there to be so damn many. Like many of my fellow citizens who have flocked to therapist's office over the past year, eager to sort through their trauma of being governed by a narcissistic megalomaniac, I was already aware that the current political era was doing something strange to my psyche. But it can be hard to pin down exactly what these emotions are, if the words for them even exist. We've already borrowed some of these German words into English. Schadenfreude, one's joy at seeing someone else's shame as in laughing when somebody else slips on a banana peel. This is something probably practiced more by Trump voters at others' expense. That is laughing at people's anguish at being expelled from the country by ICE or giggling at high school kids trying to get Congress to change gun control laws. Here are Posner's big seven words, words I have started using with some frequency as they are so damn applicable to ordinary life here these days. Number one, Fernweh or distance pain. It's like having the opposite of homesickness. It's the feeling of wanting to be somewhere else, anywhere but where you are at this moment. As Posner points out, The Fernweh many Americans feel today is a bit like wanderlust, minus the glamour, and with the added fear that you may be harshly judged as an American traveling abroad in the time of Trump. Number two, Weltschmerz. Weltschmerz translates literally to world pain, and boy, oh boy, does that say it all. It's the state of weariness one feels at the state of the world. This is a word that has already been borrowed from German and therefore exists in English, like schadenfreude, as it is good for certain situations. As Posner says, Some of us may have felt a constant state of Weltschmerz since November 9, 2016. Number three, Kummerspeck. Kummerspeck is literally grief bacon, or the food you eat when you're depressed. I don't know about you, but if I'm down in the dumps or overwhelmed by life, I eat. As Posner reminds us, If your state of Weltschmerz has been really getting to you, it's possible you've put on a few extra pounds of Kummerspeck, or literally grief bacon. Know that you're at least in good company. Last year, Barbara Streisand, Judd Apatow, and others complained they'd gained a Trump 10 in the months 
following the election. Number four, Kudelmudel. This wonderful heap of syllables evokes chaos or a hopelessly messy, unstructured state. Sounds like the White House is told by Michael Flynn or Michael Wolff in his book, Fire and Fury. It also reminds me of another German word my mom often used to describe my messy bedroom, Schweinerei or pigsty. Such is a good description of the world Trump is leaving our children. Number five, Fuchsteufelswild, literally fox devil's wild or rage. As Posner tells us, This is a state of unfiltered primal rage. You may have felt it over the past year while listening to any White House press conference, hearing Trump describe Haiti, El Salvador, and African countries as shitholes, or the day Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Treaty in late May, or really, any time Kellyanne Conway opens her big mouth. Number six, friend shaming. This is the feeling of shame one might get when a stranger says something that makes you feel weird about being a member of the same species. Posner reminds us, Ever felt ashamed on behalf of a member of the Trump White House? Like the time Kellyanne Conway told Fox viewers to go buy Ivanka's stuff? Or when Trump claimed his inauguration speech literally made the clouds part and the sun come out? That's fremd shaman. And finally, there's my favorite. Number seven, Backpfeifen Gesicht. In German, this means the face that deserves to be punched. I've had chats with German friends when I use this cinnamon for Trump, and they couldn't stop laughing. It's perfect for him. Oh, I'd like to fire on that fucker Trump. Everybody gets this. Everybody. So if you're feeling Weltschmerz and Fernweh at the Kudelmudel and Schweinerei in Trumpland, if you think that and Gesick needs to be fired on before you hear one more act of friend shaman, or before you get so Fuchsteufelwild that you eat your weight in Kummerspeck, you might want to look to our fellow Germanic tongue, German. They have words to describe the new world we live in. We're now inside of what I call Winechester Cathedral. This is one of Steve Weingarten's first creations here on the land. Um, it's a, a small little church. You call it the chapel, don't you? I do call it a chapel, yeah. yeah. It's kind and, of a folly, an, an architectural folly. An architectural folly. And how did you get started on this architectural folly? By the way, it's full of stained glass windows. It really does look like a beautiful little cathedral. Well, in about 1995, I stopped in at this antique store in Cloverdale, California, and uh, in the back of the store were a couple of uh, very tall doors. They're a total of six feet wide, about nine feet tall, had some very nice stained glass in them from a church, a Victorian church in, in San Francisco from a hundred years prior. I loved the doors. Uh, they were pretty. They were tall. Uh, I, I made an offer on them that was way too low, uh, drove away, and by the time I got home, they said, come pick up the doors. And the doors then proceeded to stay in my garage for about six to seven years before I finally decided I needed to make a home for them. And that's where the chapel came from. So the doors were the, the inducement to start the chapel. And then, as I recall, you started to buy stained glass windows from around the country. And I flew down to a place in Riverside, California, where I heard they were unloading 2,000 stained glass windows. And so I picked a number of those as well. And I just started putting the parts together together to make a structure for the doors. Um, in the steeple, in the steeple, there are a couple of windows that came from uh, a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, also turn of the century, kind of the same time frame as the doors. And there are a bunch of windows, uh, some of which are church glass uh, from Europe. And there's some deco English windows as well. The doors have an arched top. And so I built a lot of arched beams um, to go to be the ceilings. Now, how did you do that? As I recall, that was quite a process. It was 
was nearly endless. Um, by, by the way, this whole thing took about a year. I'm a builder guy, and it took me a year to build this structure that has about 300 square feet, but it's also 20 feet tall, and it has an arched top. If you'll notice, all the, all the windows that are happening beneath these arched uh, beams have something to do with that. So there's a, the red of that window then reflecting the red of the beams up above it. I was doing whatever I could to try to make it seem as if everything had a home here and some degree of intention behind it. This is essentially build it and they will come. This is okay, Basically, this is based on Field of Dreams. So I'm expecting Kevin Costner to show up pretty soon. I'm really surprised that he hasn't yet. Uh, different. There have been a few musical events here. There have been some theatrical events here. It's very sweet. We're outside right now um, next to Puff, which is one of Steve's first dragon, stone dragon, that he built on the land. In fact, it is the first one, isn't it? Uh, Puff was dragon number one. What happened with Puff was I saw this rock at the quarry and it looked like a dragon head and I decided I could make a formation based on the dragon head I could build the rest of the dragon and so then I proceeded to get dragon parts or the way I saw them they were rocks at the quarry and brought them over here and we made an armature out of dirt and then uh, puff the head is about four tons I, I believe and how big is that uh, four ton rock it's about oh three and a half feet wide and about five feet uh, five feet long. This rock, it's a schist. It's what it's, uh, it's a sedimentary rock. It, what are you calling me? <laughs> no, no, don't take offense, please. Doug. Okay, uh, it's a schist. It's I a, understand. It's a sedimentary rock, and um, and when it's rained on, uh, the colors of blue and uh, some green come out. There, there are very white lines which look like quartz, and that was, it used to be beneath the ocean, and then it got pushed up millions of years ago and ends up in this quarry in Laytonville. And which is the quarry I've been dealing with for some time. So anyway, you found the head rock first, and then you yeah. decided to build from there. And Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how long is Puff from uh, head to tail? Stem to stern, Puff is about 100 feet long. Now, at the time, did you think, okay, that's my dragon, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with dragons. And then, or did you let it percolate a while and then think, I've got to do more of these dragons? Yeah, the percolation took about 15 minutes or so. And then after that, uh, I decided, wow, if I can do Puff, wouldn't it be great if dot 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 and then a lot of other things started happening after that it was such an exciting thing to basically pull one off that i thought well let's make it more bigger better anyway i uh i've got a couple of dragons here and there's a guy dragon and a gal dragon and well warden june the cleavers basically uh up at the top, where their where their tails are, they're sort of entwined, and then they kind of swing out in uh, one direction, which is more easterly, and another direction is, is more northerly, or something like that. And they are here to greet anybody coming down the road. Now, if if we were to uh, to give us some comparison to uh, Puff, who we just met, these are also huge dragons. These look even bigger than Puff. They are. Well, I came to conclude that Ward and June were actually Puff's parents, and so. So Ward is about 160 feet long and June is about 140 feet long. They they wind up uh, with their tails and they're coming out. They're in classic form. The Chinese uh, uh, 
Food dragons are guardians of the temple and Ward and June are guardians of the land here. So you had dump trucks come with what you're calling dirt, soil, or land. You had dump trucks come and drop the drop the soil down first. You then had help with a, a guy with a backhoe, who I believe is named Sean. That's right. So so my my buddy Sean, a very, very patient guy, um, more patient than a, a backhoe guy should be with me over time. But yeah, so he he had his backhoe and the truck started backing up and they started delivering dirt and he would form it. And I had ideas about how it should be formed and what to do with it. And then he ran his truck and his backhoe back and forth over and over to tamp it down to create a good armature. And then the rocks started arriving and then we proceeded to clad this thing. And so he drives up with the um, giant backhoe machine with the claw piece in the front. That's right. He picks up a rock and places it. And then you say, no, I want it over here. Here, I move it back that way. I want it five feet this way. Is that approximately the that's, process? That's that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. So in the end, I have to, as uh, the guy who's kind of directing the chorus here, I have to figure out which rock goes where. Uh, I have to figure out um, if my idea for where a rock should be placed is any better than a rock that I see for the first time uh, demanding a placement that's better than my idea. You know, you got to stay pretty loose. You really have to stay loose on this. Now, we've walked about 50 yards back in towards Steve Weingarten's uh, land for the center, and we come upon what looks like a staircase of stones heading up. So not a dragon this time, but a staircase, and there's a cute little gray squirrel off to the side eating a nut, but I think he's just looking for camera time. Or well, something. that's true. I, you pay him a quarter, actually, and he's going to do a series of uh, squirrel poses for you. Anyway, yeah, so it's like, okay, I... I can do dragons. Uh, that's good. And but I, I'm sort of interested. Can I pull off an architectural formation? And that's what this is all about, really. And so I got a bunch of pieces of rock that seemed like they might be stair treads. They seemed like they might be stair treads. And um, having been recently influenced by uh, various uh, configurations from the Game of Thrones, and thinking that maybe Khaleesi would come visit one day, I, so I, I put this together. It's sort of like a grand staircase going up to a little place where you might hang out if you were looking for dragons or something. We've walked around approximately about 150 yards into Steve's land, and now we come to something that's under construction. This is a large sort of uh, geometric uh, site that looks a little bit like it could be a huge throne zone on Game of Thrones. It really does. And I wonder if you could give us a description of this piece, which is actually unfinished. It's it's unfinished, and I'm, I'm hoping to wrap it up soon. I've been working on it for the, for the better part of the year. I suppose I was thinking about uh, Angkor Wat and people uncovering ancient ancient uh, formations. And what would it be like if you came across something in the middle of a forest someplace and, and you were trying to figure out what were they thinking? And this is kind of like that. Um, structurally, uh, the numbers are about 140 truckloads of dirt, meaning 1,400 uh, yards of dirt, a, around 600 tons of rock. It's about 175 feet long from point to point. And so there are five different places where the biggest rocks are acting as if they were spires and they're coming out of the top of it. And the top of the top one is at about 25 feet. And this com coming up from grade. The idea was that these spires were somehow protruding or shooting up through the th these other rocks. If this was 
say, the, a kingdom or the, the base of a government of some other civilization. That's kind of what I had in mind. Anyhow, he's terrifically patient with me because I'll put a rock up or he'll put a rock in place and I'll look at it and say, no, it's just not right. And I'll ask him to take it out and he takes it out. And as opposed to just taking off my head, which would be very easy because he's got a joystick. That, and he's got that giant claw, which could rip your head off the, quite easily. The, and was, then it, grab you like a T-Rex and throw you back and forth and throw you over the top of the thing. This could be just like Jurassic Park all over again, but, but you know, I, apparently, it would be good if he didn't do that because eventually, you know, I'm going to have to pay him. And this, by the way, this is a great example of listening to the rock. So I was going to have a single vertical stone be the center of this thing, sort of like a maypole or something. But there at the quarry was this rock that just looked like an altar rock. It, it, it just looked, not that you would sacrifice somebody on it, but, um, but you could. Not that I have. Anyway, what the thing was, this was the perfect rock for the center of this particular formation. And I I was smart enough to see it at the time and they delivered it, it didn't break. It was very heavy. We rolled it up to the middle here, the, the machinery did. I stood back and, and that became the center of the piece. And it's made sense ever since. It's made sense ever since. It's a place to sit. You can ponder things um, if you so desire. If you're a philosophical person, you can think philosophical thoughts. Um, it's, yeah. You came from being a classically trained artist. You had studied fine arts and sculpture, getting a Bachelor of Arts degree at the California College of Arts and Crafts. And next thing you knew, you were washing dishes at a restaurant called The Seagull. Yeah, well, uh, as I was to find out later on, getting a Bachelor of Fine Arts and then moving to washing dishes is actually a progression in your life. And that's exactly what I did. I think many artists have probably followed this path. And then, so you ended up here in Mendocino and you're busy, uh, you're busy doing, uh, making art and you're also building houses well you know over time i worked in the restaurant industry for four years um i was a very good line cook but i think i flipped a lot of burgers over time and, and there wasn't a lot of challenge to that although a good burger flipper you can't overlook a good burger flipper anyway um i started building things and um in in my in my lineage there are architects and and builders and i was always interested in form and function so over time I would get little jobs and then I'd do little construction projects and um, eventually that was what I did for a living was to build things. So you were sort of a one-man contractor. I was a one-man contractor and eventually I got my contractor's license and I was legal and all those things you do and it was okay with me. It was okay. And so you were doing art on the side? As much as I could. Yeah. Um, I was always taking a College of the Redwoods class which meant that I had access to a kill and to glazes and to clay and so, it, so I kept that going as much as I could. And then suddenly I recall sometime around, I moved here uh, later in 1977, and I became the recipient of a lightning cow. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about lightning cow and that and his role in your career. Well, yeah, uh, this goes very, very deep, actually. So my uncle, uh, Charles Moore, esteemed architect, he was in Oaxaca one day and he bought a cow, a little, not a real cow, but a ceramic cow, and he gave it to me 
me for Christmas. And I came to conclude that uh, this cow must be the center of its own sense of organized spirituality, which I became a follower of this little ceramic cow. And then I proceeded to make a bunch of them. Um, and so I reproduced this cow over and over and over again. And um, there seemed to be something to that. It was sort of a meditative kind of thing. Now, as, I, as I've noticed around the county, there are numerous people who have lightning cows in their houses. Well, uh, they are amongst the fortunate ones. And I can say there are probably very many other people who have these same cows in their closets. In a number of years, these things will be very valuable. Now, Steve, I understand, uh, well, I not only understand, uh, I've actually seen a lot of your set work. In uh, 1982, you joined Hit and Run Theater as a performer, and this meant uh, being a lot of um, comedy skit shows, but it also meant that you were um, making sets. I wondered if you could describe the kind of work you've done as a set designer. The, the general notion is that if you have a small improvisational comedy group in a, in a small community uh, such as ours, that you need to have a guy with a truck. And I had the truck. Um, and that's the that's the dream for a bunch of aspiring performers is to know somebody who has a truck and then does a lot of roadie work. Anyway, so I, <laughs> I had the truck. I was doing sets. Uh, my background was a background in the visual arts. And, and so I had a lot of room to experiment. And oftentimes, for example, we would do comedy reviews. And so you would be required to make props, everything from a, say, a panzer, a tank that somebody could climb into, so they would be like a human tank, to, say, a variety of goofy prop pieces that would be animals, uh, weapons, and so forth, which you would invariably make out of quarter-inch plywood, as I recall. Quarter-inch plywood is an excellent, excellent material because it's because it's light and you can take up acreage with it very quickly. And I would even go to the dump and ask them, could I pilfer this this used quarter-inch plywood, and I, and, which I did. So I was able to make sets and props uh, for very little money. You were also one half of the, the Bernays brothers. <laughs> yes, that's right. You played uh, Johnny and Toulouse. Bernays were uh, a pair of uh, Siamese twin uh, French cooks. Uh, Johnny did not speak uh, English, and so he only spoke French. His brother Toulouse translated for him to the audience, and he was invariably hitting on the women in the audience. So. Well, you see, because Toulouse <laughs> was busy translating for Johnny all the time, that gave Johnny a lot of free reign to be waggling his tongue at the at the you know comely young ladies in the audience, and they seemed to respond very well to Johnny as well. In the end, Toulouse, I think, was probably the intellect of the two, but then Johnny had the uh, what is the je ne sais quoi. He did. Uh, Johnny built a variety of things. He had a micro of magnifique. He had an exoset baguette. A variety of other things that he built over time. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. were several different. There were several different Johnny Bernays episodes. I would like to say that the people are still calling for Johnny Bernays, and I don't know that to be the truth, but, you know, I would like to think that they thought well of John. Who knows what goes on in old age homes. Je ne sais quoi. We're now in Steve's studio, and we've come around into a room that's kind of a gallery, and it's got some pieces here where the frames are in what looks to be sort of four by six wood, and there's some um, phrases on felt. This particular room, a lot of these pieces came from the morning after the most recent presidential election. You're speaking about November 9th, 2016. A day to live in infamy. Anyway, it was, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. And uh, many people uh, on the left, many of us poor liberals were crushed. And uh, the result, of, for me, I needed to do something with this, this sinking, oppressed feeling. And, um, and so 
a number of things came from that. There was uh, several of the pieces. One is called Inquisition, where the I in Inquisition is small, and by the time you get to the N in Inquisition, it's become larger and darker. Another one that's very long, about oh, five and a half feet long, it just says, un-fucking-believable. Another one, the darkest hour slash the dawn. Um, another one, another fine mess. Another one, this is not a rehearsal. So are, are, I know as part of Hit and Run Theater, you've done a lot of political pieces over time because part of what we've done is agitprop, basically agitational propaganda with a perspective from the left. Now, you've done these. Would you say, how much has politics influenced your art in general? Well, um, that particular day, it influenced it huge. Um, make, making a piece. Making a regular word piece probably takes a couple of weeks if I just worked on that alone. So if you come up with a bunch of them, expect several months of your life to be absorbed by this. In general terms, um, I'm aware of politics a lot. I'm aware of having um, feelings about things. Uh, I have at different points been active, more active. I mean, I used to canvas for votes. At different, so there are all these things. There are all these things that meant something to me and they have a, were political nature and by degrees doing art or being an artist has political overtones whether you want them or not it can be a rather subversive act depending on what you make as an artist we're in the south room of uh, Steve Weingarten's uh, studio gallery and uh, there is a variety of his pieces here now that looks like a different one is that looks like a Mobius strip except it's a piece of blue ceramic it's yeah that's right it's a Mobius strip this falls into the one-liner category it's a Mobius strip with whales on it. And the name of the piece, do you know what the name of the piece is, Doug? Uh, would that be Mobius Dick? Mobius Dick, exactly. I'm guessing there, da, da, but da, there da, we da, go. Da. Yes. Now here we've got uh, a guy who looks to be a, a chicken that is on a, um, like a slingshot. Yeah. And a guy is holding him back. It looks like a chicken is ready to be launched. Yeah, strange that you would say that, Doug, because what um, you start, in this particular case, you've got a one-liner and you know what you want to do and then you have to make the piece behind it. So here's a guy who is getting ready to launch a chicken, and the name of the piece is Launch of a Pollo. So we're now over by the entrance to the studio, and I remember in the day, um, I was in Paris and I was uh, I went on this tour of Notre Dame, and the higher up you get in Notre Dame Cathedral, the more you run into these gargoyle guys. I started thinking about these guys, and I was wondering, what would it be like if during the off hours, you happen to sneak upstairs and, and you're hanging out with the gargoyles, and and they were talking with each other. What would it be like? So this is sort of like a conversation between um, two big gargoyles. And they had to have a physical presence. And so they're so big, I actually had to make them in parts because they wouldn't fit into the kill properly. So um, there was a lot of engineering aspects that went along. And they're so heavy, each one of them, I can, I can barely lift them. But um, they're impressive when you walk into the shop, don't you think? I wonder if you could describe your process as an artist. How do you get started? How do you progress? What comes into your mind? The process has evolved, and it has evolved in sort of an improvisational fashion. In general terms, if I'm going to make something, if I'm going to create something, I need a piece of paper, a, usually a big piece of paper and a pencil. And that's where you start. In fact, that's where they all start. Um, and you start to, you separate the wheat from the chaff. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go with this thing? And so having worked in, in um, ceramics, doing set building and, and
and now rocks, um, you get to the point, you've made a drawing or two, you have an idea, and then you let go of your drawing. You know a direction you want to go, but you don't know the details. And, and for me, this is probably the most important thing because um, the life in a piece, whether it's ceramic or rock or, or even a set piece, happens in the spontaneity, the spontaneity of the piece. So uh, make your jump without knowing where you're going to land. And I live that one. This is, this is how I do it. Uh, even in the most well-planned out pieces, give yourself some wiggle room. Basically, in that situation, when I'm doing rock work, I try to bring with me everything I've ever learned. And, and this has to do with the, the rock, the color of the rock, the size, the declination, um, how it relates to other rocks, for example, what, how it relates to what I want to accomplish. It's sort of crazy. It's like six dimensional chess or something like that. And sometimes I'll have him roll these, you know, three ton rocks over so I can see the backside to make sure I'm making a good decision. And sometimes, more often than I'd rather, the next morning he shows up to work, I have him pull out the last rock he did because it just didn't work right. It's hard. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. And it's like a safe cracker. You know, you just keep on running that sandpaper over your fingertips and you hope you hear a click. And if you got the click, you're good and you know it. And maybe you even feel inside. If you don't got the click, then, well, maybe you have to keep looking for it. And um, the rocks themselves are a terrific medium. They're the best. They're terrific. There's no rock I don't like. There are some that are better for certain scenarios. And there's some are just spectacular that does, it, I, I should put them all on a on a, on a platform and say, look at these things. They're wonderful. But, you know, you don't know how it's going to be any given day. I've had great days. I've run three or four great days in a row. I think, man, I'm, un I'm so good. And then the next day, you couldn't put a stone in the ground to save your life. Now, in addition to being a visual artist, a um, landform uh, worker, a sculptor, etc., I mentioned before you had done a lot of set work for hit and run theater, set design. You've also been on stage plenty, including much of the last 25 years as an improviser. You've done a lot of improvisational theater, improvisational comedy. I wonder if you might look at the links between improvising on stage and improvising as an artist. Improv by its nature means don't stop learning, really. Um, or, or if you do, do something else. And and so that's sort of a starting place is that uh, being open to learning um, and not figuring out that you've got it figured out, that's an awfully good place to start. Um, but essentially, essentially, it's, it's similar in a lot of different ways. In that, you're looking for opportunity. That's really, it's what it's about. And that, and that idea sort of jumps over all of the different medium to go to a, a place. What are you seeing right now? What's right in front of you? Can you can you stay present? It's kind of Buddhist, um, but it's, it's Western as well. And so where is it that the energy comes from? If you get it, where do you want to take it? Do you understand the structure of a story? Do you, or do you understand the structure of a story that you want to tell? The story you tell can be in words, it can be in actions. Um, it could be in a, a, a series of placement of rocks or it could be in ceramics. So in that way, this goes across everything. When I first met you, you had just come back from uh, going to Oslo to see uh, some of Edvard Munch's work in Oslo. And um, uh, I, I saw right away that that seemed to be a major inspiration for you. I wondered if you could talk a little bit to us about some of the major artistic inspir inspirations for you or who are some of your favorite artists. Yeah, well, that 
particular trip, I, I had gone all the way to Oslo to see the work of Edvard Munch, who um, I loved like crazy. And um, and then I got there and then I loved his work even more. So when you do this thing, it's almost like a spiritual sort of gig where you go to some place and a, a picture in the book is not the same as, you know, standing, you know, four feet away from this piece that you have admired for years, except in a different form. And, and you get the brush strokes and you get the energy coming off of the canvas and etc 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 and in a similar form there was a, a, a time about 10 years ago when I was in Madrid and on consecutive days I saw in its proper place there was uh, Guernica by Pablo Picasso and then all the drawings that led up to that and then associated paintings that came off of that all of which he did and it was mind-boggling the size of it I had seen it in 1977 in New York and it blew my mind then and it just blew my mind again and then the next day I went to the um, museum across the street from uh, where Guernica was and, which was the Prado and I saw uh, a presentation of Goya's atrocities of war and boy what a one-two punch I remember seeing a work uh, in a book by a gentleman named Robert Smithson and he did this piece called Spiral Jetty it was in 1970 and he did this piece at the corner of the Great Salt Lake where this is 1,500 foot long jetty that came out in a spiral into the lake. And he, he had come to determine that that was the place for this particular configuration to be. It's called landform art, and he was on the front end of that. And it sure uh, inspired me. It's like, what? You can do that? Art, art can be so lacking in boundary, and it's probably been one of the reasons that I've been so excited about getting to do art, is that um, you get galloping, and you don't have to stop here. The, the lines or the barriers are barriers that you put up for yourself, as opposed to you have to run into, and then you have to go back again someplace. And you've now uh, been inspired by the landform art to do the dragon rocks here, and to do all the staircases, the dragons, the Stonehenge inversions, etc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, these are exterior <coughs> constructions. Um, not quite. My biggest construction equals one tenth the length of the spiral jetty. My my own uncle, in terms of Charles Moore, Charles the Moore. architect. Yeah, um, where he went and what he did and what he'd come up with and his capacity for collaboration and all these things that um, that you you had to do very 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 well and they were skills that that absolutely span the entire spectrum. There's so many different approaches to that. Pretty much any French Impressionist, for example, man, they must have woken up every morning like, uh, woohoo, let's get to it, you know? I know, that was like a giant battle of the bands going on, except <laughs> in the painter world, you know? <laughs> what, you call that a brush stroke? I call it piss. And then you go home and you try to do a brush stroke that's even bigger. And then you bring your thing to the square the next night and you're drinking your absinthe and you're showing it off to your buddies. You know, it's a very alive time. Um, and and there, there have been these times in history when these great minds have been in the same place at the same time, and it just made everything better. It just made everything better, you know, and, and you sort of imagine the kind of excitement that they had. I probably couldn't imagine Toulouse-Lautrec so much because I'm 6'5", and he was probably three feet shorter. But he could paint like, you know, like like a devil, you know? Yeah, you can out-rebound him, but he can, he can out-paint yeah. you. But he might trip me up when I 
I'm, you know, trying running down the court, and I won't even know who is there. Finally, I wanted to ask you: um, Is there any particular thing you've wanted to accomplish uh, with the, all the time you've spent in the visual arts? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked me that, Doug, because there is one thing, and it's something that I've uh, richly deserved for some time, and that would be posthumous recognition. Thank you very much. <laughs> The G.I. Bill. My dad, Don Nunn, graduated from Vallejo High School in Vallejo, California in June 1948. Within a month or so, he was enrolled as an apprentice welder in the local Mare Island Naval Shipyard. For the next few years, he was busy learning how to weld submarines until in June 1950, the Korean War started. My dad then joined the U.S. Navy and was trained as an electronics mate. For the next four years, he served on aircraft carriers, the Bataan and the Ariskany, as a radar and sonar repairman. This included two lengthy tours of duty in the Yellow Sea, launching fighter bombers over North Korea and China. It also included a lot of jamming of Chinese and North Korean radar. When Don Nun left the Navy in August of 1954, he had a wife and two kids and a little magic coupon in his pocket. This magic coupon was the GI Bill, one of the greatest and most transformative pieces of legislation in American history, perhaps the greatest in the post-war period. Let's start with Dad's life. He went from being a working-class welder in 1950 to starting college at SF City College in the fall of 1954. The GI Bill paid tuition and provided some living expenses for Dad and his family over the next four years. Granted, it didn't pay much, and my hustling dad had to work a 40-hour week in addition to being a full-time student. But the GI Bill guaranteed his education. In June of 1958, Don Nunn graduated from UC Berkeley with a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical engineering. I graduated from kindergarten the very same week. In addition, the GI Bill helped mom and dad buy a house in Walnut Creek, California in 1959. The GI Bill transformed Don and his family's life. According to David Kennedy's book, Freedom from Fear, the GI Bill aimed to regulate the flow of returning veterans into the job market by offering them vocational training and higher education, as well as housing and medical benefits while in school, and low-interest loans thereafter for buying homes and starting businesses. Kennedy goes on to state, The GI Bill thus stood out as the most emblematic of all World War II-era political accomplishments. It aimed not at restructuring the economy, but at empowering Individuals. What a concept, using government to help people and by extension to help the country. This is the essence of a true social contract between the government and its citizenry. Social legislation which raises all boats by empowering the working and middle classes. Note, not by offering tax cuts to rich people. In Robert Reich's Inequality for All, he points out that the United States enjoyed its greatest and most widespread economic boom from 1947 to 77. The GI Bill added more than a million veterans to the nation's universities at Uncle Sam's expense in the immediate post-war years. According to David Kennedy... Fewer than 10% of young people attended college in the pre-war years. Almost 15% did in 1948, and double that proportion, nearly a third of all Americans 20 years later. 
Reich adds that by the late 1950s, the U.S. had the best educated labor force in history, with strong unions and history's largest middle class. This spawns what Reich calls the virtuous cycle of social spending. Productivity grows. Wages increase. Workers buy more. Companies hire more. Tax revenues increase. Government invests more. Workers are better educated. The economy expands. This was the story of the 1950s, the 60s, and well into the 1970s. Compare this to supply-side economics, begun under Reagan in the 1980s, where perpetual tax cuts help mostly only the top 1%. If you combine the dismantling of social programs and managed capitalism with runaway globalism to benefit corporation, you ruin the social contract, one that worked for generations. We need social legislation that works for the greatest number of people, laws like the GI. Bill. So I salute the GI Bill and applaud how it changed my dad and mom's lives, and by extension, our lives as well. My dad and mom have always been proud of the fact that they were able to send all three of their kids to college. I wonder what would have happened if dad had never gotten out of that shipyard. Jim Jeffrey's monologue on gun control is still the best. I've written earnestly and sincerely about the need for gun control. I've listed all kinds of charts, quoted all kinds of graphs. There are about, quote, 300 million guns in this country, enough for every man, woman, and child in the USA, unquote. Americans own 42% of the world's guns, blah, blah, blah. But no one makes better arguments against Americans' obsession with guns than Australian comic Jim Jeffries. Don't give me this other bullshit. The main one is, I need it for protection. I need to protect me, I need to protect my family. Really? Is that why they're called assault rifles? Is it? Never heard of these fucking protection rifles you speak of? Protection? What the fuck are you talking about? You, you have a gun in your house, they, you're 80% more likely to use that gun on yourself than to shoot someone else. And people think, well, that'd never happen to me. You don't know that, because you know what? From time to time, we all get sad. You're right, Jim. All countries have mental health issues, but Americans don't have any more than anybody else. As for the NRA's argument that we all need guns for protection... See, if you have it readily available, it becomes unsafe. You have it in your bedside table, one of your kids picks it up, thinks it's a toy, shoots another one of your kids. Happens every fucking day. We'll go, that'd never happen in my house. Because I'm a responsible gun owner, I keep my guns locked in a safe. Then there's no fucking protection! <laughs> Someone comes into the house, you're like, wait there, fuckface. <laughs> oh, you've come to the wrong house here, buddy boy. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna fuck you up. Okay. Is it 32 to the left or 32 to the right? And of course, the NRA stands resolutely behind the supposed sanctity of the Second Amendment, an almost impossible to understand and grammatically odd sentence. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. Here's Jeffrey's take on that. I understand that to Americans your constitution is very important. Uh, I respect it, but please understand that every country has one as well. It's no more special than any other constitution. We have one in Australia. 
I don't know what it says. <laughs> I've never seen it. If there's a problem, we'll check it, but everything's going fine. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I get that the Constitution's important to you. I have had fucking, I get it, right? I've had people come up to me in my face and scream at me in car parks as I'm going, leaving the theatre, going, you cannot change the Second Amendment. And I'm like, yes, you can. It's called an amendment. Like, if you can't change something, it's called an amendment. See, many of you need a thesaurus more than you need a constitution. And if you don't know what a thesaurus is, get a dictionary, work your way forward. your constitution is set in stone. You've changed things before. You used to have prohibition in there, right? And then people were like, hey, who likes getting fucked up? <laughs> yeah, I like getting fucked up too. Let's get that one out. Let's get that one out. You used to have this other thing in America called uh, slavery. <laughs> and then Lincoln came along and went, that's it. No more slaves. And 50% of you went, fuck you. Don't take my slaves. <laughs> And then the same bullshit arguments came out that you have with guns. Why should I have my slaves taken off me? I'm a responsible slave owner. I am trained in how to use my slaves safely. Just because that guy mistreated his slaves doesn't mean that my rights should be taken away from me. I, I use my slaves to protect my family. I keep my slaves locked in a safe. Maybe marching with those students as they march for their lives on March 24th was just a waste of time. Maybe the NRA won't listen to reason and won't be swayed by Jeffrey's comedy. As Joe the Plumber supposedly said just a month after Sandy Hook, Your dead kids don't trump my constitutional rights. Maybe not, Joe, at least not right now. But your bogus reasoning and bitter resentment need not trump reality. The U.S. is the most gun-toting country in the world, has the most mass murders, the most gun-related deaths, and has lost more people to guns in the last 15 years than we've lost in all the wars we've ever fought. What's more important, Joe? Our live kids or your cold guns? Thanks for listening to our maiden podcast of Snap Sessions. I want to thank Steve Weingarten for being our lead-off guest and official first artist to be launched. And I want to thank our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, who makes it all sound better. And thanks to our voiceover talents, Christine Samus, and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity. Foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.